Hi guys, Joshua here. Welcome back to Forgotten Neighbor. This is part two of five reasons why you should believe in a literal millennial kingdom. Our recording session ran a little long, so we decided to split it up into two episodes. So this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that and then come back here. So we are talking to Jeremy Schwinger. He is a friend and also a member at Liberty Baptist Church. And we really enjoyed our conversation with him. And this is the last half of it. We'll be jumping into point four or reason four. Hope you enjoy. Thanks. Okay. All right. Uh, is that? Are we on four now? We are on four. Okay, All four. Right. We're yep. making our way, guys. <laughs> Great stride. This has been awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Number it. four is the New Testament does not set aside expectations of a future earthly messianic kingdom, but confirms them. Now, a little back bit of background on this one. Um, I have not seen a millennialist or postmillennialist really try to make the case well that the Old Testament clearly teaches against um, premillennialism. In fact, they'll usually say, like we said with the literal fulfillment, if you read it straightforward, it does teach a, a um, future earthly messianic kingdom. But the thing is, now we have the New Testament, and the New Testament shows us or orders us even to reinterpret the Old Testament. In other words, if we didn't have the New Testament, we would not, um, we would not realize that the kingdom is the way that a millennialist or post-millennialist say it is. I think there are massive philosophical and theological problems with having the idea that the the New Testament needs to be a palimpsest or like a, a screen cover over the Old Testament. Mm. I think the Old Testament has its own voice and that it actually points us forward to the fulfillment in the New Testament, not that it needs to go back and be worked through because of it. In other words, I think that the Jews had sufficient information in the Old Testament to understand Christ and his coming kingdom. Um, and in fact, we see from the rabbinic writings that many of them did, uh, from, we're talking about from before the time of the New Testament, that many of them did recognize the Messiah would have to suffer and die. Mm. So it's sort of become a, 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 what's the word, a truism that people repeat that none of the Jews um, expected that Jesus would suffer and, and not be a coming king. Um, that's that's simply not true. We have texts that show otherwise. Now, you could say the majority of the Jews didn't expect that. And you could also point out that according to premillennialism, they were right. Jesus is going to be a physically conquering king, but it's just not going to happen until his second Still coming. Delayed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, so the the force of amillennialism and postmillennialism in large part rests on, well, we have license from the New Testament to do this kind of reinterpretation of the Old Testament. Yeah. But my contention is when you get to the New Testament, you see that this, this idea of a future earthly kingdom has not been abandoned, but is reinforced. Mm-hmm. Um, so a really good text, and if Colin, if you would pull this up, is Acts chapter 1. And Acts this comes at one. such an important, uh, important nexus theologically. So Acts chapter 1, of course, is Jesus' ascension, right? So this is on the very brink of... 
of um, Jesus, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, going into uh, the church age as such, where you have the, the, the birth of the church at Pentecost and Acts and so forth. Um, and uh, Jesus has this very telling conversation with the disciples about the kingdom. I'm going to start reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, after his suffering, that is after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, that is to the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Pay attention to that. So Jesus post-resurrection has, you could say, like a month and a little more seminary class <laughs> bonus pack for his <laughs> apostles. And and, I thought my eight-week classes were hard. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the topic that he chooses to speak about is the kingdom of God. Okay, very telling because that's what this final conversation before his ascension to heaven is about. Um, on one occasion, while he was even with them, oops, we don't care about that verse. No, I'm just kidding. We do care about it, but it's not directly pertinent to what we're talking about right now. It says in verse six, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, before we even read Jesus' response, there are several things that we can say about the, the apostles and what they've gotten from Jesus' 40 days of instruction. Or maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't teaching them every day, but during that period of time when he was talking about the kingdom of God, plus all of their understanding from before that. And I think it's very important to note that this is post-resurrection, so some of the mistaken conceptions that they had beforehand would have been shattered. Mm -hmm. You know how they were very confused about him dying? Well, that's yeah. not not a, a point anymore. In other words, there's a lot more clarity. So we can't kind of scapegoat on, well, the disciples were confused about this and that. Um, this is post-resurrection. So it's a little bit different animal. So the disciples believed um, that the kingdom had not come yet. The mm. messianic kingdom as such. Yeah. And uh, they also going. asked Jesus specifically, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Mm. They had a belief that God was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus' response, verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And After this, he said is, this, this is right before the ascension. Yes. Because verse like the 9 last makes thing it clear. that Jesus talks about. So this is after Jesus has spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. So. If this, if Israel weren't to have a kingdom after this, you would think that Jesus would have cleared that up. Yeah. Especially because, yeah, he's literally like boosting it out right now. Like he's taking off. <laughs> His jets are warming up. <laughs> um, and he's, he's, he's taking off. And I just have always pictured a cartoon of like, if Jesus, if that, if that really, like if the amillennialists and postmillennialists are correct, Jesus thought bubble would be. They're so wrong about this, but I've really got to, like, I'm not going to clear that up. I've, so, got, I've but got to go. He, he, the thing that, um, not to make light of the issue, because this really is a serious issue, but if, if that was really the crux of it, if they were so wrong about this fundamental nature of the kingdom, it, it would make much more sense and would almost seem imperative for Jesus to say, look, we just talked about the, are you so still slow, slow to understand? He's not, he doesn't show. I've yeah, heard people which he say, had rebuked yeah, them before. he does that sort of thing. People yeah. say it's not wise for us to assume what Jesus would say or not say. 
I agree with that to an extent, but in this particular case, I think that's not a good card to pull right. because we know that Jesus is not afraid of telling the disciples off really bluntly. Mm-hmm. Um, Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, yeah especially yeah. On, or, on important topics. Yeah. Um, when he tells, you know, when, uh, yeah, on important topics, he says, you are dead wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, you are so confused. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, instead, he focuses on the part of their question that is the information they're not privy to. He doesn't say, guys, the kingdom's not going to Israel. It's going to the church. Um, he doesn't say, I already have restored the kingdom. It's already here. Instead, what he focuses on is you want to know the time. That's not your business. What you are supposed to do right now, these are your marching orders until the kingdom does come is verse eight. So this it, very mag, uh, magnificently critical conversation right before Jesus ascends, like the very last thing that he's talking about that's on his mind, that's on the apostle's mind is the return of the kingdom. And he does not disabuse them of the notion that the kingdom is yet to come, nor does he disabuse them of the notion that it's going to Israel. Hmm. 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 This is just one of, of multiple texts we could look at, but I think that one in and of itself is very telling. Yeah, Man, I had so. never noticed that before. Yeah. Specifically in the context that it's set in, this just wasn't a conversation they had at some point in his three and a half year ministry. And that's a very logical question to ask yeah. mm-hmm. after all of this teaching, because mm-hmm. it's kind of like the last question you have, like, all right, is it now? Yep. Like, yeah. Which, by the way, if they had paid attention during Luke 19, they would know it was going to be a while because Jesus specifically told a parable because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Mm. 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 Man. Um, Matthew 23, this was a verse I mentioned or a text I mentioned earlier. Uh, when Jesus is l- unloading the woe truck on the, the Pharisees, <laughs> um, he says, uh, lamenting over Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm. And we know from many, many prophecies that Israel will call for her Messiah. And also the word until in Greek, both Greek and English implies a termination. So I won't be able to go to, uh, I don't know, the Celtic festival until it's open. But guess what? When it is open, I can go. You know, so the word until implies a terminus. So when Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. He's yeah. saying, you will say this. Also, um, in in Luke 21, he talks about um, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, there will come a time when the times are, of the Gentiles or are fulfilled. Or Joseph did not know Mary until she yes. had given birth mm-hmm. to his son. And mm-hmm. we know that... That had a terminus because then you yep. get brothers of Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. And Catholics. so, and then, then um, uh, Romans 11. So Romans 11, I mean, we could spend like six years on this oh, text. Yeah. But anyways, and also I think this is, is it's very hard to read this um, with any sort of coherency if you don't, um, <clears throat> if you don't read it as a future restoration of Israel. In fact, even a lot of people who are, Amillennialist and postmillennialist. How do you open this whole chapter thing against my again my technological ineptness? <laughs> let me striking. just say this in the meantime. I there was one day during my devotions when I read the end of Zechariah, mm-hmm. and in the same day I translated the end of Romans eleven, mm. and it was downright magical. <laughs> yep. it, just how clearly they coordinated with each other. It was amazing. Oh, the other thing, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. The other thing that I think a lot of people miss is they'll they'll talk about, well, how, doesn't Paul 
set these expectations aside. The thing is that Paul knew the Old Testament very, very well. And um, he's writing from that background. So there are a lot of things that he takes granted for granted from the Old Testament um, that he's factoring into it. So just because it doesn't show up explicitly in his writing doesn't mean that it's behind the background of everything that he writes. And that makes perfect sense when you get to Romans 11, where he is more explicit. And um, we, we don't have time probably to look at the whole chapter, but I do want to get to uh, a section in the middle. I know the end is really the, the grand finale, but there's a section in the middle that's, that's massively important. Verse 11, again, I ask, did they stumble, that is the Jews, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. He's adamant about this. In other words, the Jews are recoverable. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Hmm. Purpose statement. God's doing this on purpose to hmm. make Israel envious. Hmm. But then verse 12, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Mm. Paul is excited about something that won't happen um, in his lifetime. Wow. Yeah, in his lifetime or in an amillennial or postmillennial scenario. Now, some of yeah. them do believe that the Jews will will all come to faith, but Paul is thinking about riches beyond just the Jews turning back. He's talking about the restoration of the entire world, which he says mm-hmm. in just two verses, three verses. I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am in the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. And then he, he strikes that same chord again. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That's the resurrection of the dead. Yeah. And that's and the really, end of everything. The, mm. the, the, mm. Um, the lifting of the world, what Jesus calls the regeneration in Matthew 25, when he tells the disciples, you will reign on 12 thrones with me over the house of Israel. Judging. So um, he's looking at not just for people, but uh, even for the world here, you can see him talking about that in Romans 8 as well. Wow. And of course, at the end, um, <clears throat> he's talking about uh, the f- all Israel being saved, which for some reason, people try to insert j- just Israel, meaning all believers there. But the thing is, he's kept a distinction between Israel and Gentiles the whole chapter, mm-hmm. the whole chapter. And you can't even read it um, coherently if you don't keep that. And so it only makes sense that as he's going on, he's still using it that way. And um, because it's, it's an, it's a, what's the word? A tautology to say all believers will be saved. Mm. Well, of course they will. What he's saying here <laughs> is all Israel will be saved. That is the, the Jews at the time of the end, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, which if you look back at the original text there, the covenant, new covenant is first made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which is not only terms for the Jews ethnically, but specific historical yeah, usage of Which it. we get in on it. Yes, because of the covenant Christ, with Abraham. Because we're in the seed of Abraham. Yes. Yeah. Which doesn't make us Jews, by the way. And this olive tree analogy that Paul uses here is even clearer than that. Because the Jews are branches and the Gentiles are branches. Therefore, the tree is not Jews, right? Oh. So the root... Mm is the promises to the forefathers who lived before the Jews existed. Abraham was not a Jew. Jacob, I guess you could say, was the first Jew. Yeah. Wow. Um, 
<laughs> oh my goodness. So well, Jude speaking technically is would have been Judah. would have been Judah. I yes. guess probably yep. would have been the first Jew, literally speaking. But but it does. Yeah, the word does. I mean, that's where the word comes from etymologically. But it refers to all the yes, descendants yeah. of Jacob. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then it's even clearer in the the closing verses. In case we missed it, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Whose enemies? It can't be talking about believers. No. It has to be talking about ethnic Jews. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. So what he's saying here is the people who are enemies of the church, who are enemies of the gospel, they are loved unconditionally because of the patriarchs. Mm. So the only place that you can have, and it says God's gift and his call is irrevocable. In other words, the New Testament can't overwrite the Old Testament. It can't redefine words. Yeah. Yeah. It's irrevocable. If the same God wrote it, why would yeah. he want to? And and so Paul, New Testament, New Testament realities, he's not turning Old Testament promises into shadows. He's if anything, he's coloring them with a darker marker. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> oof. He broke out the Sharpie <laughs> and went ham on that. Thing. <laughs> he just like went wham. <laughs> Number five. Okay. This is the the end. Now, I saved this for last because it's about Revelation 20, and I wanted to make the point that (laughs) Revelation 20 is by no means the only place that talks about the millennial kingdom, but I do think that if you get your your amillennialism or postmillennialism and try to run it through Revelation 20, it does not work, even if you grant the premises for those views. Mm. It's it's impossible Mm. for it to go through the text, Mm. okay? Uh, I need you to work some technological magic again here. And Revelation 20 really is like, it's not the only text that's affected here, but it is, it's the apex text. Yeah. It's like, it's it's, it's the one where, you know, the rubber meets the road. Yep. So So, um, we've already kind of dealt with the whole apocalyptic argument. So, I mean, that's, that's the main card that people pull out to, to reinterpret this is to say, well, this is apocalyptic literature. You have to read it differently. I don't think there, in fact, if you look at Daniel, which everyone agrees is of the same type of literature, you have literal fulfillment over and over and over and over again. So even if it is apocalyptic literature, the precedent is literal fulfillment. Um, that being said, I think even if you grant that some symbolic fulfillment is being used here, it's still unworkable with anything except believing in a future millennium, particularly with regard to the binding of Satan and with regard to... Um, with regard to the resurrections and even the the whole issue of the a thousand years. So what we see with Satan's binding in verses one through three is this. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So many issues here. One is it mentions the dragon, but then which is a symbol, but then it tells us what the symbol represents, just like yeah. other places in Scripture yeah. that use symbol, right. symbols. Right. So the pattern is already set. Um, here's the thing about the abyss. The abyss, from what we can tell, is a real place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the uh, it, it is mentioned um, under the moniker of Abaddon in the Old Testament. Uh, we're not as interested in those passages because we've got a really clear one, not because they're not helpful, but just for time's sake, and because we've got a really clear one in the New Testament. 
Luke chapter 8, Jesus has an encounter with a squadron of demons Mm -hmm. going by the name of Legion, and they beg him not to throw them into the abyss. Yeah. This is a real place that they can really possibly go if Jesus chooses to put them there. Um, This same spot is mentioned in Revelation as containing demonic beings in in chapter 9. And and also, here's the thing about angels and demons is some people think it sounds very sophisticated to say things like, well, they, they transcend you know, spatial dimensions and so forth. We know that angels have some sort of spatial constraints because they're not omnipresent. Yeah. Even in their own realm, the spiritual realm, the other side of the curtain, they have to go from A to B, you know, so angels are summoned to God's throne room. They have to, there's movement involved. Um, so there are places in the spiritual realm. So Sheol, the, the abode of the dead is a real place and the abyss is a real spirit prison. Um, So if Satan is bound in the abyss, that means he is not on earth doing any of the things that we see he's specifically said to be doing in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't make sense then if Mm -mm. he's roaring like a lion. or not. No, yeah, roaming about roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. (laughs) Yeah, and Um, and I think of like um, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 where the God of this world, yep. quote-unquote, mm. is blinding the hearts and minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Can't do Satan, that from the abyss. It Run, can't do that from the abyss, yeah. No. And and the other thing is, let, uh, what people usually will say was the abyss is a picture. If it is, it is a very bad analogy because um, Satan is able to do a tremendous amount of damage here. Even to Christians, there are a lot of verses in the New Testament that talk about ways in which Satan can not only deceive unbelievers, but that he can deceive Christians Mm, and that mm, the apostles mm -hmm. are and Jesus are very concerned that believers will be led astray by Satan. Whereas here in Revelation 20, it says, he cannot deceive the nations anymore. It's almost like they literally are making a distinction. Hey, he can't do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Over and over and over again, we're told. In fact, I have a list of passages here. I'm not going to pull them out or read them, but there's a lot of them. Um, there's a lot of texts that talk about Satan deceiving believers and unbelievers alike. So what you have to do is say, well, the, the abyss is, is figurative, but if it is, it's a very bad picture for the fact that Satan is really not that restrained at all. And, G- and Jesus talks about a time when I, I'm not sure exactly who the subject is, maybe Satan or maybe the Antichrist, but it's trying to deceive, if possible, even the. Elect. Oh, yeah, that's in Second uh, Thessalonians. It's talking oh, about. Oh, that's in Second Thessalonians. It's talking okay. about the Antichrist, but it's talking about Satan working through him. Yeah. So Satan is the source of that deception, and it's so strong that it might even deceive the elect if God did not interfere. Mm. Mm. So Man. this. What do you do with, you know, the words deceive the nations anymore? You have to completely gut them because deceive means trick, fool, lead astray. Those are all things that Satan is doing to unbelievers to the extent that they're damned and to believers even to an extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And nations, who are the nations? Routinely in scripture, that just means the peoples of the earth. Um, If you want to use it as referring to the Gentiles, many of the Gentiles are deceived even today. And the word anymore is both in English and Greek a word that's you know added for emphasis to say like we're being clear here Satan is not doing any deceiving mm-hmm. and yet he's doing a tremendous amount and then it says um, until the thousand years were ended well if we're in the millennium now 
the yeah. chain and the abyss is not doing a very good job. Mm-hmm. But if we just read the text straightforward as Satan can actually be put in the abyss and actually be kept from deceiving the earth, which would make sense why God would do that during the millennium, because that is the time of Christ's visible supremacy and Satan does not get to foul it up. Um, because Jesus is going to be fulfilling the dominion mandate that men have failed, that Adam failed and every man since has failed. Right. He's going to rule the earth righteously. Right. So Satan's binding is, is a, a major issue. You have, to, you have to decimate those words, deceive the nations anymore, if you're going to believe that Satan is currently bound. Um, the resurrection piece here. Okay, so in the next verses, four through six, we have... I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. One point that I want to mention before we even talk about the resurrection deal is um, the term for a thousand years always occurs in the accusative in the Greek here. And when in time units are used in the accusative in Greek, it refers to the entire duration. The reason this is a problem is because this is indicating that those who reign will do it for this entire time period. Well, if you believe that, you know, any point in the church age in which Christians are born, that they can participate in the millennium, then this simply can't be true. I mean, it's just a fact of the Greek language. Um, I mean, it's a detailed thing, but it's a, it's nonetheless an accurate thing. And that's simply what the accusative for time is used for in Greek. Um, so, so then about the resurrection, uh, people, who believe in amillennialism or, or postmillennialism read this as the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, and the second uh, the the oh, yeah. the second one is is a physical resurrection. There is there is a different view that says um, the first resurrection is or the first coming to life is, and the first resurrection is just um, the intermediate state, which I have I have major issues with that linguistically. Yeah, because yeah. the word anastasis is used here, and that that simply means coming back to physical life. That's that's almost a technical term in the New yeah, Testament. Very there are close. Very few There's times There's one in the, usage in Luke chapter 2 that doesn't accord with that usage. Yeah. And it's very abnormal. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't fit with the intermediate state idea either. Yeah. <laughs> um so even the one abnormal usage that we have doesn't fit with that. Um so you'd have to invent a non simply a, a definition for this word anastasis that we don't find anywhere. Um, the second thing is that even if you do read it that way, let's plug those terms in. Um, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, they had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They received Christ and reign with Christ a thousand years. Mm. They've just been beheaded for their faith in Christ. It doesn't make any sense to say that what this coming to life is refers to them believing in Christ. They can't be beheaded for Christ before they've even believed in him. Right, right. Um, uh, The other thing is it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Mm. Um, 
if this is spiritually coming to life, then, and it's talking about then this rest of the spiritually dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That means that everybody's going to come to spiritual life. Right. But that's, that's just if you straightforwardly plug in the terms and definitions that they're using. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying even if you grant um, their presuppositions, you still can't read it uh, in a coherent way. There is some people who believe at the end of the days that everyone will just love wins. Yep. Rob Bell. Rob Bell, mm-hmm. who apparently is making a killing doing circuit speaking and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He's a comedian now, too. Must be right. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That that has been interesting evolution. Evangelical oh, pastor man. to like progressive teacher to Oprah's bud to comedian. Yep. <laughs> this yep. has been an interesting evolution yep. here. Yep. Devolution. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um Zing. But the I almost see it as like this this passage is the one that the amillennial patches and postmillennial patches are made to fix. But even when you plug them in, you can't read through the text and have it work. So, um, but if on the, on the contrary, if you read it for, as, just as it's written, an angel comes down, he binds Satan, puts him in the abyss, he's not able to deceive the nations, that fits perfectly with the conditions of a future messianic kingdom where Jesus is glorified by everyone on earth and everyone knows that he's king. Mm. Um, and that these people who are beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus are physically raised to life to reign with them. That's what's been promised all along is that the saints will share in Jesus' reign on this earth. In fact, there's even a text, and I think it's Revelation 5 that says, and the saints will reign on the earth. It's not talking about us reigning in heaven or Christ reigning in our hearts. It says we will reign on the earth. And it accords with Jesus' parables about you have stewarded what you've been given well, therefore take charge of five cities. Interesting, Yeah. yeah. And I think also this is sort of the coda or like the little cherry maraschino on the Sunday that we've been eating Um, that uh, I think people as a result of misunderstanding the millennium um, misunderstand the purpose of the eternal state as well Uh, because the millennium is to fix everything that was wrong with this earth. So God's going to restore it to Edenic like conditions. Um, Man was supposed to fulfill the dominion mandate. Um, but he hasn't to this day, but Jesus is going to fulfill it personally when he comes back. The man, back. the second yes, man. Yes, the, the, second the last Adam. Adam. Yeah. And he's um, going to let us share in that reigning with him. Uh, I believe that the eternal state almost functions like the resurrection body of the cosmos. Hmm. So oh. that that uh, God is going to, to finish his purposes for this earth. And then when we read about the this present heavens and earth being destroyed by fire, or as Jesus says, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. As Revelation 20 so startlingly puts it, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from its his presence, and there was no place for them. Mm-hmm. If you think about that, the heaven I mean the heavens and the earth is the Greek way of referring to the universe, all that exists in the physical realm. If there's no place for the physical universe, what does that mean? Mm. <laughs> it's gone, mm. which that's why Peter says, you know, it'll be consumed completely in fire. And as Jesus says, the heavens and the earth will pass away. And so then Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Mm. So first we receive our resurrection bodies and we make things right on this earth as it was supposed to be all along. God is not going to be thwarted out of this by the curse. 
he's going to fulfill or by the fall, God is going to fulfill all the purposes that he had for this creation. But the only window that he can do that in is a future millennial kingdom. If you fast forward to the eternal state, you miss that opportunity. And God actually does miss out on fixing this world the way that he intended. And then the eternal state carries that much more weight and meaning because everything's been fixed with this world. And now God's God's already given believers their resurrection bodies. And now he's going to give the cosmos as it were, its own resurrection body. That's oh so cool. my gosh. So cool. I feel like that was just the bow that wrapped the whole thing up right there. And that fits perfectly. I mean, like hand in glove with Romans 8. Yep, I mean, does. like with this creation groaning for mm. the revelation, not of, yeah. not of Jesus, but of the children of God. Yeah. It's when we receive our resurrected bodies and it's it's only after that that this creation Gets then fixed, can fall in right. line. Wow. God's gift and his call are irrevocable. So just because we louse it up doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Oh. Yeah. We're, not yeah. only is Christ going to do it, he's going to have a share in that, which is amazing. Yeah, that's Man. a beautiful gift of grace right there. Man, and it's just kind of... I mean, kind of like to wrap this, all mm-hmm. of this up, I, whenever I read the Old Testament now, there is a dimension to it that I, I kind of feel like I can actually be in conversation with the prophet now. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I can actually be reading what he says, seeing what he says, and I, I it's intelligible, you know, it, it's kind of like what God said with the, with the law. Uh, my commandment, I didn't put my commandments in heaven, so you can't get them. Mm-hmm. I, they're not on some far off coast. Like, they're understandable. And I feel like it's got to be the same way with these long term predictive prophecies that. Because they are clear. If they you are the clear. Testament, if you just let that... them be what they are, and you when you have a f- f- pan canonical view, like all the whole Bible view of it, it, it just makes sense. And it. It's kind of like a lock and key there. And so. Revelation 20, frankly, is not hard. Like even someone who is not a Christian didn't had never heard the term apocalyptic literature, thankfully. Mm. Um, <laughs> where to read Revelation 20, they would could figure out some stuff that's going on. Well, who's this Satan guy? He's put in the abyss. That sounds bad. Um, but he can't deceive the nations during that time. Like that makes perfect sense. And these people got their heads chopped off, but they're resurrected. Like all of that makes sense in a very straightforward fashion, just like the prophecies in Isaiah about... Um, nature being restored and the lion lying down with the lamb, that's actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and God being the master storyteller. I have a lot of respect for J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm, I'm kind of uh, in awe of, of how magnificent Lord of the Rings is as far as like this huge story, but very airtight, that at the end of it, you are so satisfied because he's wrapped up all the all the loose ends, but God is that par excellence. Yeah. But no. the loose ends do not get wrapped up if there's not a future millennial kingdom. But if there is, it's so satisfying. And like we were talking about at the beginning, who watches a, an outstanding movie and then is like, ah, oh, the last 15 minutes are not really that good. You, we Like, this is God's movie. We better watch it. Yeah. And you better believe the last 15 minutes are going to be incredible. Yeah. Same and, private Ryan. Yeah. And what we want to say, <laughs> and what we want to be clear about here is that we don't believe that premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial is what we would call a gospel issue in the sense of, like, if you disagree with us, yeah, it's not a we can't, issue. like, break bread with not. you. And that's not what we're trying to say. But what we are trying to say is that, like, <laughs> 
this is an important issue for biblical interpretation, for sanctification, for understanding what God has try is trying to tell us. I mean, we get all hot and bothered about things like Calvinism and stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, when it comes to an issue like this, that affects pretty much every corner of scripture, we just say, well, let's just not think about that. Yeah. But, but it's actually really critical. And once you understand it, I, for me personally, at least I'm so thankful that I have met you because a whole nother section, like a whole nother room in the house, the lights came on and, and it brightened up the whole house because of it. So would you, would you almost say though, would you, to put a number on it, that it, it's not a first tier issue, first tier being salvation yeah. issue, yeah. but a second tier. I issue? would put it on second tier. Yeah. Well, okay. So when we got to be careful when we say yeah. that because there is technical, there are technical things. So I think it's Alan Moeller. He, he came up, he calls it triage, like church triage. Um, hmm. Uh, where if something's a first tier issue, it means if you believe this, you can't even be a Christian. So like, if you don't believe Jesus died for your sins, you can't even be that a Christian. God, he, yeah. yeah. A second tier issue is like, you're a Christian, but we're not going to start a church together. Mm-hmm. So those okay. issues are like, um, baptism. Like if yep. we can't agree on who to baptize, yeah. how are we going to make this thing work? Mm-hmm. A, a, ter- a third tier issue is where we can have fellowship and we can start a church together but we're going to hold these differences. Um, we're going to hold them. We're going to debate, debate them. And, and he, a distinction that can be, that is sometimes made is a tertiary issue doesn't mean it's less important than a secondary issue. A tertiary issue can actually be closer to the heart of the gospel. Mm. Okay. Even than a secondary issue is. So I personally think that this issue is closer to the heart of the gospel, even than baptism. Um, possibly, but baptism, because of it, its ecclesiological implications, mm-hmm. inhibits you from starting a church yeah. with someone. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would classify it as tertiary only because I can break bread with an amillennialist, mm-hmm. yeah. if that makes sense. I can st- I can plant a church yeah. with someone who takes – Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, have the Lord's Supper with them. I can baptize believers with them, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that this issue is not important. Yeah. Right, right. It just, or um, is, see. or is not even more important than some secondary issues. And but um, yeah, I would, I would say, I think it can move almost back and forth between second and third because personally, uh, let's say that somebody that we had a church that that actively taught preterism. You know, the belief that the Jews are the villains of Revelation and that God has cursed them and anathematized them. And the only reason they're still around is just to be cursed and wander um, and uh, and was also post-millennial. So they're believing that we are actually physically setting up the kingdom. I don't think I could hmm. like I could affirm those yeah, people I, as Christians, I think, but I don't yeah. think I could fellowship in that church yeah. and yeah. not feel a great deal of like. This is because it affects practically what you do. Yeah, and how you relate to people. Yes. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of issues with eschatology. I mean, there are hyper-preterists who say Jesus isn't even literally coming back. And also that believe we're already in the new heavens and the new earth, or that we even have our resurrection bodies, and that's full-on heresy. And that is actually a first-tier issue where the Apostle Paul, and it's either 1st or 2nd Timothy, addresses someone who said, um, that the resurrection had already happened. Uh, the obvious implication is that it, he's saying, oh, it's a spiritual resurrection, yeah. right? Yep. Um, and he says, 
they have made shipwreck of their faith. Yeah. Ca- throw them out of the church yep. because that's not the gospel. In other words, eschatology is at the very heart of the gospel, which is why I would compare um, es- like eschatology or I would compare views of the millennium to things like Calvinism and Arminianism where they're not a first tier issue and mm-hmm. I can have fellowship with you, but they're we're really talking about the gears here of the gospel. Like we're yep. talking about how is this engine working? We agree about the engine that mm-hmm. it's there and we agree that it's getting us to this location, but how is this engine working? Um, and so that's, yeah, that's what I would compare it to. Yeah. West and Virginia, their slogan is almost heaven. So if we are in the new heavens and new earth, West Virginia is the pinnacle of there we yep. go. They, yep. There we go. They, they're self-realized. West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, we better now at an hour and forty minutes. We went a little long. Maybe a two-part. Hey, but it this be. has been amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Jeremy, thank you for coming on. I have no doubt in my mind that we'll be inviting him back at some Certainly. point. Yeah. Even Certainly. to maybe talk about Genesis. Yeah. Oh, talk about I Genesis. Would be all over that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We maybe we'll do a uh, top five reasons to be a uh, young Earth creationist oh. or something like that. Yeah. Maybe so. give me fifty. Maybe give me fifty. We'll um, make it a five part. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Jeremy, thank you again. Thank you so and, much. And uh, thank yep. you guys for listening for nearly two hours. Yeah. Thanks for sticking it out. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So hopefully we've been a uh, exciting listen on your, you know, at your workout or whatever you've been doing. So working out, working out, working out for two hey, hours. I'm a, Have you ever worked out for two rock hours? climbing? Yeah, I used to work okay. out for like yeah, rock climbing, biking. Yep. I used to work out for like two hours a day at Planet no, Fitness. Yeah, stop. Dead serious. What? Dead serious. If only you had this podcast. My wife, my <laughs> wife would text me sometimes, and be like, "Are you ever coming? Yeah, you're ever coming home? And you're like, I'm getting swole. <laughs> <laughs> You'll thank me later." <laughs> and with that, um, we shall bid you adieu. Goodbye. Adios.